Investigation Podcast. It's Todd Conklin. How are you today? He says, pausing weirdly in the middle of his sentences. Okay, enough of that. That that would get tedious really fast. Today is a great day for podcast. It's autumnal here in New Mexico, and I've talked about it before, but it's great. And I'm now on the big, uh, so it's it's a really big week. I broke a thousand miles on my bicycle. So I've ridden my bicycle well over a thousand miles, um, which seems amazing to me, but it's kind of fun and it gets me out and it meets all the tests. And that's good because everything's kind of whipping into a frenzy again as we get closer and closer to all this uh, tension we have with the election and the pandemic and the economy. And I don't need to go through all this. You, you know how this goes. And so that's going to be a part of it. So today's podcast, let's get right to it, because this one's kind of long, but there's lots going on here. Today's podcast is really a snapshot of a of a, a panel presentation that I was a part of a week ago or so, and it was a really interesting opportunity to get together, and a lot of people attended or Zoomed in or whatever people do now, and it was with the... Uh, there were three of us. It was uh, Nippon Arnold, uh, Maeve Overland, and myself. And we were talking about sort of the intersection between health and safety. And maybe even a better word is wellness and safety or holistic nature and safety. And and what we were really talking about is is uh, is an event. And it was it was really centered around the maritime industry. And I don't know if you guys are following this very closely, but right now the maritime industry is in a really interesting position where the the people on board the vessels can't really get off the vessels. So they've created a bubble of safety uh, around which they can operate, right? I mean, they can can make the boat go. And the way they keep that bubble of safety a bubble is they simply not allowed people to get on and off the vessels. They can't get on and off the boats. And, um, it's uh, it, I, from the outside looking in, and that's the only way I can see this. It seems a little bit like prison, but it's I don't think that's the intention. But all of a sudden, the things around wellness and how people respond, and what's happening, and the holistic nature of keeping workers not only safe but sane has become a really big part of it. And that equated into a, well, some events, just obviously some events. And that's really what this panel discussion is about. And so the three of us talk about really the learning that we potentially could take from this and move forward in the spirit of improvement. And that discussion is what you're going to be a part of. Now, that discussion is really a teaser for a long discussion or longer discussion. And long sounded judgmental, didn't it? I didn't mean it that way. And that is that Nippon and I are doing our advanced investigation theory and practice class again by request. And if you haven't heard of it or taken it, it's November 17th through the 20th. So gosh, that's next month, right? And it's, uh, it's in some like three and a half hour blocks every day for four days. It's a great course. I mean, I really think the course is interesting because the first two days 
a really investigation theory for kind of the new view. Uh, and then the second two days is a deep dive case study in the Costa Concordia. I've talked about it before, but that's coming back up again. And that's kind of why that panel happened. Uh, that panel happened in order to um, really be a part of the discussion around this course. And the course has really caught some air. If you haven't been a part of it, it's, it's time you think about it. it the, the way we investigate has to change. And it's probably one of the more powerful levers we could pull to actually create change. And so this discussion is kind of the beginning discussion on taking everything you've learned about doing event learning and investigations in the past and kind of adva- maturing it, advancing it to a point where it's much more context-rich and it really allows you to identify the conditions that existed, which is exactly what we're talking about. One of the big conditions is if these guys can't get off the boat, then suddenly things like Internet um, become really more than just a, a nicety, a benefit to have. It's becomes a necessity. It becomes a critical part of the cruise operations for everything, not just safety or mental health, but for everything. And that's really where this discussion starts. So let me not talk as much and just jump into the discussion and you'll get a chance to hear exactly what we're talking about. Thanks for being on the pod. It's always fun to hang out with you and I appreciate it so much, man, we're popping. Uh, tell your friends, this is a great one to listen to because there's a bunch going on there. I, I just love Maeve. You'll love her too. She's brilliant. And that makes this podcast even more interesting. So without any further ado, here is our panel discussion live via Zoom from last week where we talk about sort of the intersection of wellness, mental wellness, and safety. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and if you're going to bed, uh, good night very soon. Uh, <laughs> we, we are, uh, uh, well, it's, it's really nice to have you, and uh, uh, I'm joined by Todd Conklin, who probably doesn't need much of an introduction, uh, and, uh, and also Maeve Onolan, who is a very great friend. She has been, uh, is doing some amazing work in Musk, trying to get some, some, some really innovative thinking. Uh, so uh, very pleased to have both of them with me today. And uh, the topic that we have chosen is the, the misaligned goals of health, safety, environment, and quality. Today, the Wakashio is, um, as you know, in Mauritius, there has been an, uh, an, uh, a ship that is, that is grounded and uh, there's an enormous oil spill. And there's already a lot of speculation on media for things like... Uh, the captain might be attending a birthday party at that time, and they were going close to the to the to the land to get Wi-Fi signal, uh, and and words to that effect. What would you say to 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 all this, uh, all the news that is coming out from from there? So I just want to take a pause to set some set the context for this. That the person who I am speaking with is the captain of Hebe Spirit, uh, an oil tanker that collided with a barge a few years ago uh, near the coast of Pusar, near the coast of South Korea. And he was put behind the bars for almost a year and a half. At the point, my my idea really was to explore with him that shortly after the accident, you see a narrative emerging uh, as a result of, of, of 
a kind of a story that emerges very quickly after an accident. And in the case of Wakashio, one, one of the, the bulk carriers that has run aground just off the coast of Mauritius, uh, the initial story that emerged from, from in the media was that they were having a birthday party on board, that there was, uh, there was uh, that the crew were looking for uh, a Wi-Fi signal or a phone signal, and the captain was navigating close to the coast to, to allow the crew to communicate with the people. So my idea was to, to speak to somebody who had been in a, in a, in a very difficult situation, been, been, at, been at the receiving end, and to ask him, what does it feel when you hear a story like this of another ship captain? Um, so this is really the perspective that he offered. What, what's your view on that? It's very, very sad that people just start commenting on a thing. They really don't know what a sea life is. They just start commenting. Maybe one of the crew members must have said they had a party or a birthday on board. It doesn't mean there is a party. People start speculating, okay, there was a big party or something like that. I don't think so. No master with such an experience will do that. Okay. And even if there is a small get-together or something like that, which can happen, you have to socialize, otherwise you cannot survive. Now, and just start blaming him for that. Once this COVID-19 is going on, people should have realized that how difficult it is to stay in a lot of for me, it was okay. Just like being at sea, you're here. I was having a better time. I was with my family. You're in your own house and people start crying. People are coming on streets all over the world to stop this lockdown. And they don't realize that the person is there for six months and all. And if he's having a get together, I don't know what reality it is, but if it is a get together also, it's a small one. Okay, four, ten people come and you don't uh, stop a ship and uh, have a get-together on board. And plus, at such a time, when nobody is signing off, nobody is signing on, I don't know how many people were there who must have they got their extensions. It must have been very hard for even the master to uh, keep their morals high. And now he's getting blamed for what? Without anything proof against him. And that thing, this pollution happened after how many days? Ten days, more than ten days? And it's, it's sad. It's not a collision. It's not an accident. It's an accident happened. Vessel like wrong. His job is okay. He to report. He reported. Okay, this is thing has happened. Incident has happened. Then it's he cannot do anything. He cannot stop. Then it's the shore authority who should have done something. Something like if there is a fire in your house, you have to extinguish it with a small extinguisher which you have got. After that, you have to call the fire brigade to extinguish it. Same thing is here also. He cannot do anything. He needs shore assistance. There was the assistance. They should have handled it. They should be blamed. If this thing has happened after that, they should have come and helped. Okay. So, so context is so important to everything. And it's so easy retrospectively to look at the event and see all the places where in this case, the vessel crew failed to prevent the bad thing from happening. And then to build all the excuses for why they didn't prevent the bad thing from happening. But the conflict that exists between sort of the holistic nature of a crew on board a vessel and their ability to operate reliably and safely is really an important thing for us to talk about 
in all industries, not just in maritime, but in all industries. Because now we're being forced to look at safety not as an outcome to be achieved, you know, uh, 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 an event without failure. Now we're being really forced is probably the wrong word, Nippon. We're, we're now being, we're, we're in a position now where we must look holistically at the context and the environment in which the work happens to understand how that influences the ability to successfully have work. Um, it's, it's, it's a really remarkable example. And I think you did a really good job getting that vessel master to talk to you. But I think he really outshined all of us with his simple but really powerful example of the fire. You know, you, you have the, the small fire extinguisher and at some point you need the, the whole fire brigade. And that relationship is really an important part of what's happening. What was it that drew you to this one? My view. Yeah. What, 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 why was this one interesting to you? Um, yeah, this is uh, what, what, what really interests me is this, this whole idea of HSEQ, health, safety, environment, and quality. In this particular case, how this is bracketed into something so simple and how one department is left to, to manage this thing, one thing, and how these conflicts between health, safety, environment, and quality then translate and are pushed down to the last person in the chain to manage, uh, in which case, I mean, this, in this case, the captain. Uh, so let's take two examples here. If you look at the case of Costa Concordia, you look at the classic conflict of safety of navigation and the quality of output that you want to achieve, which is you know, customer satisfaction by getting close to the land. Yeah? So this is where you buy a cruise ship ticket because you want to sail close to the land. You want viewing, you want sightseeing. And how interesting it is that the only time that this conflict becomes visible between the well-being of the crew and the safety of navigation or the quality or the customer satisfaction and the safety of navigation, when something bad happens, when there is an ugly outcome. And in that sense, I think the accident actually provides a real opportunity to understand these conflicts really well. And what we do most of the times is we simplify and reduce them into stories of human error. Some idiot went and, and, and banged the ship somewhere. What we do not realize is that how important it is to keep these very different perspectives intact and not try to not try to simplify them, but to build, as you very rightly said, Todd, to build the context around it, to be able to ask some better questions, not just after the accident, but before an accident happens. So it really means that how do you achieve that in your audits, in your in your risk assessments, and you know, more in a more proactive sense. And I think that's really my, my interest. Is that, why is it that the reality has become so detached from imagination? But we're prone as humans, you know, using human error is completely human in itself. You know, there's this lack of realization that the fact that we can even name something as human error is coming from our own biases just by being human in the first place. And, you know, to kind of echo back what Todd was saying, he was able to answer simply you know, around the situation of dealing with a fire extinguisher and what it was like, because he is in that context. He's the expert of that context. He lives that life. He knows exactly what it's like to be on the inside. You know, we're dealing with that in Maersk for the last six months. 
with a lot of our crews on ships, you know, without the protection of your worker status to be able to be able to come off ships. So being able to manage well-being as well as organizational objectives in a highly competitive, you know, lowest cost industry, it, it's really, really tough. And it doesn't help that, you know, safety is siloed in some ways that despite asking and requesting that we look at effective planning to consider every situation, that we haven't nailed this idea of competing priorities. We haven't nailed the idea that trade-offs will happen and that they're normal when these pressures are there and people are up against it. So let me ask a question of you guys, because it strikes me when you look at the maritime industry from the outside, that a vessel master is really the, the most important cultural influence to the vessel's culture, that the, the master creates the culture. I think that one's kind of obvious. So that's my starting place. But then the vessel master is really in charge of many different types of reliability. So there's navigational reliability, there's product reliability. For instance, like in an oil tanker, you know, they've got environmental reliability. So they've got navigational safety, environmental safety. They've got classic industrial safety. You don't want any of the mariners to cut their hand or break their leg. And then you have the whole quality of life issue, the whole wellness um, reliability. So we know there are distinct categories of safety that really require different philosophies and different management. And yet they all come together at this one place on board this vessel. It's, it's really an interesting microcosm of how work happens. And I think you can make the case that this is true in all industries. A, a team of linemen that are out running electrical power lines probably have um, multiple competing factors that exist. And that trade-off idea, I think, becomes really compelling to think about because we're really dealing with a tremendous amount of context, a tremendous amount of things going on simultaneously, and everybody sort of prioritizing what's most important based upon what they believe is most important. And so there's a lot of complexity in this system. This isn't a simple system. And so we'll never understand a, a, a vessel event like this by simplifying it. The best we can do, and this is always true, when you look at complexity, the solution for complexity is transparency. So to me, the most important thing we can do, and we're kind of doing it right now, is talk about these trade-offs and talk about these goal collisions and talk about these places where they all come together uh, on the vessel and these competing priorities need to be made transparent. We need to, we need to build systems where it's okay to talk about it. Does, is that correct? Is that assumption right? Absolutely. And, and that's where I keep coming back to Nippon. And I know I've had conversations with you about this. The idea of acknowledging trade-offs, acknowledging competing priorities, giving people a language around this, and actually kind of dismissing some of the ways in which we've tried to address this in the past. You know, where we talked about competing priorities, it became, don't take shortcuts, don't do this, don't do that. And it has not worked. It doesn't because, do, it, it, it can't work. Right, because the idea of saying, don't do this, or do do this, Sorry, Nip, and I didn't mean to say doo-doo in the middle of your uh, presentation, <laughs> right? That, that's a simplification of a complex system. 
When in reality, it would be much better to say these two things are coming together simultaneously. We need to be aware that they're coming together simultaneously. And we want to actually ask the question, do we have capacity on board the vessel or do we have capacity on the shore side, on the beach, to actually manage this kind of uh, conflict? And, and that's, I think that's really a vital way to look at this. And I think it encourages us to move away from classic causal analysis, as, as badly as that may sound. I think we're being forced to move to understanding complex systems and seeing a vessel really as a complex system where there will not be a single cause, a bad decision, a bad choice, a bad vessel master. I mean, that's, that's not really the issue. Uh, that's really just where it happens. But it, it is hugely problematic. And based on the license to operate system that Marine has to operate in, you know, through IMO compliance right. and, you know, the assurance requirements that are necessarily there and have had made you know, such a huge positive impact on the industry. It, 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 it's how this is being realized that is problematic, that we have these huge requirements that are necessary but then they're quite top down and they don't recognize these trade-offs. And it's difficult to do that within these safety systems in which we have to operate. But I think there's also another side to it, which is, you know, as the both of you pointed out that good and bad, labeling something as good and bad or compliant and non-compliant or safe and unsafe gives us a degree of control, uh, makes us feel that we are in control of the situation. The moment we speak the language of trade-offs, uh, compromises, uh, the, the bandwidth, it, people start to, 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 to feel, well, first of all, that language itself is very problematic to, to express. I mean, it, it's very easy for Jaspreet to say what he did, but from a management's perspective, it's, it's extremely difficult. And you need a very particular kind of leadership, which is, which is genuinely curious, genuinely wanting to understand what's going on. Uh, rather than reinstating, reinforcing what you already know through a repository of knowledge that you are collecting in your risk and safety management system. And that's can, exactly I, can I interrupt a minute, Nip, and yeah, just to sure. add one more thing? And then please take off. And a, and a reluctance to simplify. Leadership yes. at, the, at, the, at the shore mm -hmm. side, you know, in the tall building in Copenhagen or wherever they are, mm -hmm. right? There, there needs to be a, 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 almost a bias against simplification. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Because what we see is that, as in when, I mean, I'll give you an example. The, I, I was reading through a safety observation from one of, one of, the, one of the, the ships. And, it, and it, these guys are actually uh, writing, writing stories from the ship, writing observations to say, the internet is not working. And they are escalating it as the highest risk because the crew is not uh, getting access to internet. Now, from the management's perspective, that is not the most important thing. Now, this is this is crew welfare thing. It doesn't really. So right. the point I'm trying to make is this is fascinating because, you know, you are just reinforcing what you already know, because, you know, anything that comes in the way of operational performance that has nothing to do with operational performance, core performance has, has needs to be pushed away. And this is so fascinating because, you know, what this guy is trying to tell you is that these are the conflicts that are coming in the way of operational performance and you need to hear them and you need to think about them. 
but we often see this as as an element of mourning and complaining these guys are mourning they are complaining you know that's their job that's what they do mm. no they're not because very often when somebody says that the milk on the ship has gone bad or the coffee is not good quality they are telling you something really powerful about the the conflicts in the system and we and what we do not have in most top down systems is is a way to understand and engage with these different perspectives we just want to repeat and reinforce what we already know rather than engage with them because it's a very difficult place to be in for many people in the way they are socialized but there's a lack of there's a lack of recognition as well and just to kind of quoting another hro principle for todd as well is that whole idea of deference you know to expertise these these guys are in the system it's back to that point they know how things work they know where the next problem lies there's a lack of safety intelligence in a way by not engaging with them to find out what's important to them you know i i was hearing people speak recently about this and that's how they frame this that you know these guys know where your next problem lies based on what's difficult what's challenging for them what they see and what they know and it comes down to they're the only ones who understand the conditions that they face that you know make risk dynamic that make work tough um and it's yeah it's taking those perspectives into account in their context and they're the only ones who can speak about that they're the only ones who know that there's nobody in an office nobody in an office that can really speak into that situation so the question to really ask is that what mechanisms or what systems do we have to to give give space to these perspectives i think that's the real question to me mm. like what where how do people raise their concerns and i'm not talking about whistle blowing i'm talking about raising their concerns in a way that that you know so that you can actually surface them and engage with them a huge challenge in marine settings i mean this is exactly one of the challenges they're hugely busy you know for the time in which they're working not their rest time there are challenges with connecting with them you know through email through normal you know information you know flow um it's a huge challenge nathan it's a huge challenge and it's highly hierarchical um and a lot of the time you know in the likes of our ships they're mixed crews that may not have worked together before so don't have embedded strong relationships absolutely so, so and i think i think the challenge the challenge there and and it's really something to think about is have so so we need to probably go back to first principles or at least this discussion is forcing me back to first principles and that is how does leadership on the shore side right how does leadership define success is success a voyage without event right nothing bad happens so therefore risk must be low and systems must be high which we know is never true because the workers on board the vessel are creating success in real time in the midst of dynamic risk in all kinds of conditions including weather right so we have to really encourage leadership to redefine what success looks like success is not the absence of an event success is really the presence of capacity it's the it's the presence at every level in the organization to have uncertainty so when nippon talks about the fact that a tr- traditional view allows leadership to believe they're in control that's fine i mean that's uh, that's 
an excellent way to think of it. It's not true, but it's an excellent way to think of it. What we really have to do is build in the notion that uncertainty is a part of work and that risk is dynamic and that we, what we create really is, is systems that have the capacity to manage that uncertainty, which I thought was really interesting that the vessel master in your interview, Nippon, chose to talk about the, the pandemic as, as a significant part of the context of this event, which it truly is and how the pandemic has really changed the way we think about the capacity to have things like internet connectivity, right? I mean, that's, that's made it really vital at every level because the ability to traditionally do things the way your industry's traditionally done things has been dramatically impacted. So I think, I think all of these things collectively come together. The question I'd ask you two guys is, are these conversations happening in the maritime industry, are they having conversations about the the holistic nature of failure and the importance of context? We are we are having these conversations, um, and you know we're looking at the holistic view. We don't see mariners as you know people on ships doing their work. They're actually living. These are their lives. You know, this is six months living in one location away from their family, away from their friends, their, you know, their, their network of people. Um, so, yeah, most definitely it's something that has had to be acknowledged. It's something that has to be actively managed. And, you know, we've had to be lobbying to UN level to try and, you know, assure that the situation can change for the mariners, you know, at the moment in the situation that's going on with COVID. So I think, yes, you know, we're seeing it now. Has it always happened? I can't really answer that. You know, I I just don't know. No, I think uh, you're right, Todd. And and, uh, so your question really is that, uh, are these conversations about uh, goal conflicts, uh, trade-offs, compromises happening? It's it's a good question, Todd. Uh, I think... uh, if you look at the industry, it's, it's, uh, there is a huge level of segmentation. So you have some really mature players and you have some not so mature players. And it's, it's, it's not as standardized as we would like to see. So at some level, yes. But I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, often a lot of good companies that are, you know, talking about this, this new view of safety, safety differently, learning teams, particularly where, you know, you, you actually team up with the people uh, both during an accident and otherwise to try and understand the experiences better. So I think just to, to, it's, it's happening. It's slow, but it is happening. COVID-19 has changed some things. One is that we were, we were really coming from an environment, a business environment that was optimized towards creating efficiency, better, faster, cheaper, right? And if you look at the maritime industry, to a great extent, you're almost the cover boy, cover girl of better, faster, cheaper. I mean, larger vessels that can carry more, cheaper, faster, more efficient, right? But then COVID hit and all of a sudden there was a real push towards, there is a real push towards resilience. And so now you're hearing organizations, big organizations like Maersk, the big organizations that are really having discussions around building systems that are optimized towards being resilient and recoverable. And not just safety systems, financial systems, global supply chain systems, um, personnel systems, those, those systems moving towards resilience, that's a big part of what happened. And I know with Maersk, just because I, I spent a lot of time 
um, talking to Maersk. They, they started this conversation around capacity um, earlier, so they probably had some language for it. But are you seeing that have impact? Yeah, no, most definitely. And I mean, this is part of a wider organizational transformation that has been happening anyway in terms of resilient response. Um, the way it's framed within the business is this idea of agile. So being able to adapt quickly, change track, make changes quickly, reorganize. So, you know, bringing safety, you know, the, the new view of safety in under this was, you know, something that fit well with that. Um, it's not internally, I think, that the challenges lie. It's at industry level. You know, it, it's just how it's structured. It's how it's that where do you intervene in a system? And sometimes I find myself looking at that as a systems thinker and saying it's at the industry level or it's at the regulator level, which is slower, you know, and it's more difficult to change. I think internally in Maersk, we, we feel the change and we see the difference. And we definitely saw the response throughout COVID in terms even how our business, you know, how our, yeah, our business operations had to change, not just in terms of, you know, managing our crews um, and supporting their needs, but also in how we had to better meet our customers' needs and, you know, change our, you know, change, change so many things in terms of how our operations work. Well, so let's let's build on that with Nippon. How is this changing the way we're learning? So, so the big thrust to me is that this should have a dramatic impact on the way we do investigations, the way we go out and learn from events, both successful events and failure events. Yeah, uh, there was something else in my mind, but uh, so your question is that how are we how are we learning? Uh, uh, you know to to adapt to this new new way of to this new environment, uh, whether it's from accidents or, or or otherwise, yeah, and it's a brilliant question. Uh, I, I think, think the, the, it's. It, <laughs> uh, I think the, the industry is slowly recognizing that there is no way but to but to build capacity and 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 to find ways to to look at failures differently. There's those this is uh, I said before. I think, but there is frustrations at some levels, uh, Todd which is that you obviously want to do some things in a particular way. You want to give more space to expertise, to professional judgment, but then you are, you can only, your, your capacity is constrained because suddenly you have a, an external auditor who walks in and says that, no, but I want to see a more detailed checklist and I want to see a more proceduralized way of doing things. So where the industry is caught right now is that you, you almost, it's, it's not new, but it's happening even more than before that, you have one way to understand what's happening in the organization and you have another way to explain it to the outside world. And often people get mixed between the two when they say, so why should I do a better investigation? What's the incentive? Because, you know, at the end of the day, this is when I produce a really good report, it will be, it will be seen as, as, as it will be rubbished because that's not what, what, what our, our clients, what our, our majors are looking for. And I always say this one thing, Todd, that, no matter what the outside world is looking for, you need to understand this, the, the context better. What you present to the outside world is a different issue. And this is where there is a lot of tension. Maybe you can, ex you can expand on this a little bit more, I know, because you have done some really good work in this area. So the, so the pressure for the product output dramatically influences the product input. So oftentimes we, we learn in order to fill out a form, right? Or we learn in order to address the needs that we think the regulator is going to ask us for. Because we can pretty much guess what the regulator wants to know, who screwed up. Um, 
why did they do it? And how can you assure me it'll never happen again? Where did you put the, how, how fast did it take you to fire the guy? Right? So the challenge is, and I think you're right, Nip, and the challenge is, is that we can't let the output need of the regulator influence the potential improvement opportunity for the organization. And that's where I think leadership plays a really important role because we have to ask leadership, what do you want from operational learning? Do you want the ability to blame and punish the classic existential human need to find the bad guy and punish them? Or do you want long-term sustainable improvement? And if improvement is important and improvement is a deliberate strategy, and, and that becomes important because when you start looking at agility and you start realizing that agility is a capacity, the ability to change quickly and formally and stably um, is a capacity, then you can really build a strong case that what we want to do is deliberately learn. Mm -hmm. And that, that goes back to curiosity and humility, deference to expertise, because expertise lives at every level of the organization. I mean, it's all the things we've been talking about for years, mm -hmm. but now under the new COVID-19 lens, everything seems it seems like everything we've talked about makes more sense now in a way. Yes. And they have a language for this in other parts of business operations. I mean, they would never, you know, even for us, they would never have agile response without having business intelligence systems to understand right. the market context, the industry context. And then we don't do that with safety. And again, it even goes for so fundamental for me. It depends not just what we want leaders to think about in terms of blame or whether it's learning, but actually what do they want safety to be? Do they want it to be about top-down compliance or do they want it to be about doing things that will make work safe, you know, or the safety of work effective because there are different things. There are different things. It can be liability management and compliance management top-down with checklists, or it can be actually understanding work to make it safer. And for me, that's so fundamental. It, it's encouraging, though, because I'm hearing you say they're looking at the Mariners differently, that the Mariners aren't really the problem. You know, if they just were better, faster, smarter, quicker, we wouldn't have these accidents. They're starting to see the Mariners as experts, as part of the intelligence loop, as the ability to learn. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, I think, is a really good start, and that will make a huge difference. Absolutely. I often hear the point of view about independence. Is independence really important in your view, Todd, when you do an investigation? Is it possible to be independent? That doesn't, I mean, it's, it's a, I think it's a charming idea, but it's based on a false premise. I mean, there, there just is, there's not, everything is subjective. And if you come in, my theory is, and I've said this for years, if you put a person who has expertise in fire prevention on your investigation team, I guarantee you that your investigation will have a section on fire prevention, right? So we all, we all have bias. And so the idea that there's, to me, I would push away from independence and I would ask this question and it's probably a naive question, but it seems to work is who's, who's most interested in learning from this event. And then the answer is whoever's most interested in learning from this event should be actively a part of, creating a learning opportunity to learn. And so, so the company plays a really important role there. And the regulator, if the regulator is interested in learning from the event, then, then they need to come and learn from it. Absolutely. And this is where you need to see a fundamental shift from an accident investigation to, to event learning or learning review, an opportunity for learning. 
this is yeah this is really the crux in my view to stop because the word investigation in itself is so daunting it's so scary you know you're going to trace something and find something that exists outside and and it is a utopian view yes and there are ways around it i think some of the good things that i've seen you know before this role that i'm in now even is just going into investigations and actually having conversations around the normal work, the normal work context and doing that first, you know, yes, you've got that event stuff, that immediate situation that happened, but actually jump into straight away. What was normal? What is normal? You know, how, what does this look like on a day-to-day basis? Because actually when things get investigated from that perspective first, then when you find out things that may have gone wrong, may have failed, it's really hard to pin it on a failure if you know that this is the way things were going all the time in everyday normal work. Um, to limit that bias that we know exists all the time, you know, the minute we start looking back in hindsight. Can you actually ever limit bias is the question. No, no. You can only understand. make it explicit. That's all you can do. Yeah. There's a wonderful study done by somebody at Cranfield University to say, how can we bring different biases together and make yeah. a more meaningful sense of the situation? I think it's, it's, it's remarkable. How can it, you ever have an unbiased view? Well, it's interesting because you, you really want a learning uh, group, a learning team to have a bias towards learning, right? I mean, so they're going to have a bias away from blame or bias away from accountability or whatever culpability, whatever word you want to use towards actually improvement. And part of it, part of it, I think, and we talk about this in the class we teach, and part of it is that I think we've confused why we investigate. I, th- I think we believe we investigate to fix problems, but we don't. We, investigation is really to learn and understand, right? Corrective actions fix, but corrective actions are a product. They're a byproduct in the investigation. They're not the outcome. That's it's what happens. And that challenge is really hard because the pressure to fix is really strong. Which goes back to the example that I said in the beginning, that if, if your report needs to be closed within 24 to 48 hours, then obviously you have a tension between learning and, and, and control. Oh, very much so. Great. Uh, do you want to say something uh, towards the end, Maeve, uh, in closing? Uh, is there anything that you want to summarize? And, and, and... No, I mean, just, yeah, the last point resonating with me is, yeah, really getting to grips with a richer understanding of, diverse perspectives and really needing to understand the context and a huge concern that we don't have the tools uh, developed yet in our, you know, in the safety profession anyway, to really tackle this effectively. They're not widespread yet, but um, I look forward to your course for that reason. (laughs) Do you want to talk something about the course that is coming up? Oh yeah. The course that's coming up is really a, it's, it's fun. It's translated pretty well to this new learning method we're using um, where we spend really some time talking about um, accident learning theory. We don't really talk about how to do an investigation because I'm not really sure um, I've ever done an investigation the same twice. I don't know about you, but they're, they're more art than science for sure. But we talk about how to think about doing really event learning. And then we roll dramatically into the quite remarkable Costa Concordia event, which is just a context rich story of a failure that everybody thinks they know. I mean, that's the great thing about the Costa Concordia is everybody's pretty convinced they know what happened. But in reality, when you look at the event, 
with a lens that says we want to improve, we want to learn, and we want to understand context and conditions. Um, it's a much, much, much different journey. And it's a pretty fun class. Don't you think it's fun? I think it's, it seems fun. I think it's fun for two reasons. One is that obviously, you know, uh, I have you with me, which is, which is a great support. <laughs> but I think it's also fun because uh, it's, it's not just a story of it on its own. It's a story that people from different industries have been able to relate with really, very quickly. It's the yeah. kind of concepts that we touch upon is, is so prevalent. And you don't realize at the end of these, these four days course that you have actually done a, a very interactive course in, in, uh, about safety management and human factors, not just tax investigations, but the entire thing. I think that, right. that, that's the kind of reviews we get all the time. Is. It's fun, that's for sure. It's great. All right. So we will, uh, I think it's been, uh, a, I really enjoyed this discussion and, uh, and uh, I hope you did as well. And I think it was very interactive. There's some really good comments uh, and we hope to continue this. Uh, but uh, if, if anyone wants to book on the course, onto the course, it's, it's on my website, thebellas.solutions. Uh, Maeve has posted uh, the, the, the link on, in the chat box and I can send you an email if anyone is interested to know more. It's happening on the November 17th to 20th uh, uh, in a webinar format uh, with, with me and Todd Cowboy. So that's the pod. What an interesting discussion. I hope you enjoyed it. I owe you 15 minutes. I'm sorry. I'm long. I didn't know what to cut. I didn't even want to really cut. A, I, it just didn't seem like you could cut from it. You probably could have, but I, it just it was a hard decision, so I didn't make it. There you go. I just admitted it. It's public now. That is the pod. If you're interested in the course, it's the 17th to the 20th. I'll put the little invitation thing in the uh, in the the bottom of the the podcast, so you can pick it up there. Until then, thanks for your time. Talk to you again soon. Learn something new every single day. I bet you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. And uh, thanks, Nippin. Thanks, Mae, for doing this. I appreciate it. Most importantly, be safe.